Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I feature Courtney Martin. In 2019, she became the sixth director of the Yale Center for British Art. Her credentials are quite impressive. I will mention a few. Previously, Courtney was the deputy director and chief curator at the Dear Art Foundation. She was an assistant professor at Brown University and Vanderbilt University, a chancellor's postdoctoral fellow in the history of arts at the University of California, Berkeley, and a fellow at the Getty Research Institute. Courtney also worked in the Media, Arts, and Culture Unit at the Ford Foundation in New York. In 2015, she received an Andy Warhol Foundation Artist Writers Grant. She also, in 2015, curated an exhibition at the Dia Art Foundation focusing on the American painter Robert Ryman. At Dia, she also oversaw exhibitions of works including those by Dan Flavin, Sam Gilliams, Keith Sonier, Andy Warhol, and other legends. She was editor of the book Four Generations, the Joiner Wifrida Collection of Abstract Art. In 2012, she curated the exhibition Drop, Roll, Slide, Drip, Frank Bowling's Poured Paintings, 1973 to 1978 at Tate, Britain. Courtney received a doctorate from Yale University for her research on 20th century British art and is the author of many essays. Please read her expanded bios on the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I am delighted to know her and feature her this month during Women's History Month. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast and enjoy my talk with Courtney Martin. Courtney, I am delighted to have you on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yes, I've been excited about featuring you. I'm just amazed at, uh, at your background. So let's start with, as a child, when did you recognize your interest in visual arts? I always liked art. I always made art, but I was just as interested in making art as seeing art. And, um, you know, I didn't, I never thought about it at the time, but years later when I was cleaning out my childhood bedroom, I found, um, you know, like book reports and papers that I had written even in elementary school. And I would spend as much time um, talking or discussing the art that might be depicted on the cover of the book as I did the book, the content <laughs> of the book, <laughs> which seems, you know, which, I, you know, it, I don't know what gave me the license to do that, but um, I always really liked art. And there was, 
you know, there was a lot of art in my life. Um, my grandparents had lived in Greece in the decade before I, that I was born. And so there was a constant conversation with, um, with my grandmother about uh, antiquity. That was a big uh, subject in, our, in, in her house. And so, you know, I hadn't been to Greece as a, as a small child, but it was something that I knew about. And so I might have thought at a very early age that um, because of the way that she put such an importance on talking about the treasures from antiquity, that it was really important. Like it was very clear that art was very important. My mother had also uh, trained um, as a fashion designer. And so she likes art a lot, but I know from her influence that um, what I would come to later understand is, as a hierarchy between the high and low arts, that I never had that because I was just as interested in patterns and design and fabric and you know what you might call craft. And you know, they all seemed like they were of a piece to me with alongside painting and sculpture. Did you ever want to be an artist? Were you ever passionate about being an artist? Not at all. Not no. even a little bit. Um, and I always knew, even from an early age, that I was not uh, good at it. But that didn't stop me. In fact, it probably made it um, made me more interested in a strange way. By the time that I got to college, you know, I have um, I took you know studio art classes alongside art history and have just as many hours in in the studio art major as I do in the art history major. But I spent all of my time as an undergraduate just remaking the things that were in the Allen Memorial Art Museum. So, you know, there was a Joseph Boy suit. I made that suit. There was, you know, woven work by Jackie Windsor. I made that work. I made the Ava Hesses. You know, I just remade them all. And I didn't think that, um, I thought it was clear that I was doing so, so that I could understand what those objects were about on a, a, on a conceptual level. Like I just needed to know more about them. And I thought that was the way to do it. I don't think, I have a feeling my teachers probably didn't appreciate that because <laughs> I would spend, you know, I'd spend what was supposed to be the time for the crit, basically giving like an art historical lecture about the, like this really badly made object that I had beside <laughs> me. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't dawn on me that that's just not, that's not what you do at all. So no, I never, I never ever thought of myself as an artist, but I did think that I needed to know everything about making the object to be able to understand from the art historical side, what the object was up to in a sense. And I have to say that um, I am probably closest to, in terms of my own research and writing and scholarship, I am probably closest to the things that I have tried to make than I am those that I don't have as much of a, a sense about their construction. So I've, you know, I've never really written about um, VR. I have not really written about photography because I've never taken a photography class. Why did you decide to focus on 20th century British art? So I didn't start at with 20th century British art. It sort of happened to me. I went, I went into undergraduate knowing that I was going to be an art history major um, and knowing before I could even tell you really what an art historian was, I knew I was going to be an art historian. <laughs> and I think that a lot of things happened in that process. One of them was that I had this amazing teacher, uh, Patricia Matthews, who would, as a part of the courses that she was teaching just on 20th century art or on modern art, would bring up living British artists. And that was really exciting to me. I also had this amazing occurrence my first year 
of college. In fact, the first week before we'd, we'd even started, I walked into an exhibition um, that was curated by Kelly Jones called Interrogating Identity. And it was an exhibition of contemporary uh, British and American and also Canadian artists. And I just zeroed in on the Brits. And I don't know that I, I was consciously saying, oh, these artists are British and this is interesting to me. But, the, but when I walked out of that show, which I saw, you know, I went back several times even in that week just to look at it because it was that the museum and the, um, the classes for art history were in the same place that I just kept thinking, wow, this is so incredible. So, you know, this is the first time that I saw work by uh, Rashid Areen, for example. And I think that it, I might have just been introduced at that moment, but I would say though that I didn't know until maybe a few years later when I went uh, to London on the Study Away program that it was even really possible to study contemporary art because, you know, being enmeshed in art history, you. I very much was given the sense that if you did not study a historic period, you weren't seriously working within the field uh, confines. That's just not how it was done. The parameters were very different then. Do you recall how old you were when you decided you want to be an art historian? I can't tell you how old I was when I said it, but I know that I was saying it to people um, by the age of, say, 15 or 16. Um, I said it before I could drive because I wanted to take, we, we had an art history course in my high school and I wanted to take that class and I wasn't old enough, or, you know, the great, I wasn't there yet. I think seniors mostly took that class and I went to talk to the teacher to ask to do it. And she said, well, you'll have to wait to your, to your senior year. And I remember saying, but I can't wait. <laughs> I, just can't, I, can't I can't wait. wait. I have to do it now, you know? Um, and I think I, I, mean, I did wait until my senior year, but I do remember having this kind of urgency um, that I needed to know that information. I was, I watched that class for years before I was there. I mean, it's only, you know, high school's only four years, but still I thought that, um, <laughs> that I was being, I felt like I was being tortured just waiting to get there. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's great. Um, you and I had a conversation once and you mentioned that you'd been enamored with Sam Gilliam, since you were a child. Yes. So share with us that story of you and, and Sam. Well, you know, Sam Gilliam isn't the only artist that I knew of as a child, but um, he is one, I would say, of a, I would say just under 10 artists that I knew about. And, I, and what's different, I think, about the knowing about Sam at that moment is that um, I knew about his work because there was a, there's a vibrant uh, arts community in Nashville. Nashville is probably more well known for its music, but in fact, there are collectors in Nashville of uh, living artists, and there are a good number of living artists who at that time were from Nashville, and so they were in contact with the city in different ways. Uh, Red Grooms went to my high school. Uh, Robert Ryman, you know, was from the same neighborhood that I was from. Uh, these people the names of these people were thrown around by my art teachers who, because they were practicing artists. And so I think that maybe as practicing artists who were also teaching children, they were trying to infuse the reality of, of the, what was you know the contemporary art world into um, elementary school education. And maybe at times they were, it was very subtle. And I don't know that every other child would have picked up on it, but for me, it was substantive. And mm -hmm. The place that, that I really turned to often um, was the Van Vechten Gallery at Fisk, huh, wow. at Fisk University. Um, you know, 
they had works in the collection that had come by way of Georgia O'Keeffe through the Stieglitz estate. Um, and those had all been, um, that relationship had been brokered by Carl, Carl Van Vechten. And so there were early modernist works, you know, there were O'Keeffe's in that collection, but there were also then a much younger generation of living American artists like Sam. There's a, there, you know, there was a William T. Williams in the collection. Um, there were many things that, that were there that I think normalized an art experience. So if you're seeing early examples of modernism alongside essentially late abstract expressionism, as a child, you don't know the difference. Mm -hmm. And so it's flat in a sense, in a good way um, that, you know, for me, Sam Gilliam was just as important and just as close as Picasso. When did you meet him? Not until many, many years later. And um, I'd seen him before because I had, you know, I'd been to art events and I had seen him, I think when I was maybe just after I moved to New York, um, you know, he was in town for something and I, I knew it was Sam because I'd seen <laughs> pictures of him. <laughs> I just knew it was him. That's Sam. Um, but uh, but I, I, you know, I didn't have the nerve to talk to him. And it is only much later that I, I began to know him well. And that's, you know, that's really evolved over the last uh, several years, which has been great. I remember going to the exhibition up at Dia and yeah. seeing that. So share with us what that experience was like, hanging and work and working with him. So much fun. Honestly, it was the, it's the most fun. I mean, I have to say, though, that I find the process of installation to be the best process um, or the best part of the experience of curating an exhibition. I think a lot of people do. That's very common for curators. But um, I like the buildup. I like the fact that you've been working on a show. Sometimes you are working on an exhibition for years and years. And in that process, you develop a relationship with the artist if the artist is living or multiple artists. Um, you develop relationships with all of the people who were on the team. So, you know, it's you, you never work alone. This isn't this isn't a solitary practice. Writing and researching, you know, you do those by yourselves, by yourself rather, largely. But when you start working on a show, particularly as you get closer and closer to the installation dates, you know, you're working with the people who will actually hang the work, the installers, the preparators, you're working with the registrar, you're working perhaps with conservation specialists. You were never the only uh, curatorial voice on a show. Everybody comes in at that moment. So in this case, the head of installation at DIA is incredible. The installation staff was great. They're all there. Sam is there. Sam's wife, Annie, is there. Wow. Um, sometimes during the during that week of installation, other people, his children dropped by at one point. That's that was a lot of fun. <laughs> Um, you know, the other staff at DIA would come in, the registrar would come down just to, to have a peek, you know, everybody is there and Sam's studio is there and they're, you know, they're also really good. And so you're there and you have this, what I call these moments where you're, you know, film people describe that process of, of hurry up and wait, where things are going really, really fast and then you stop and then, you know, you have to reevaluate and you've got something else to do, but you're waiting for something that happens a lot with installation as well. Um, when the artist is there, the artist is is laser focused on what's happening at that moment, but then they also pull back and you learn things from them and about them that you didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that Sam so liberally touched his canvases. And then I realized that if he didn't, they wouldn't get into the right position. And so that was an interesting uh, fact. But, you know, I would say that 
I cannot think of an exhibition in which I have been involved. And I, you know, I'm even talking about smaller scale exhibitions that I've had to hang myself where this process, um, you know, it, it really, it's, it's exciting. I miss doing it. I, I could do an installation every day. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And on that note, you've had a very interesting professional career. What have you enjoyed the most? Is it teaching at the university level, uh, research, being a leader in the museum world? What, I mean, what, what do you enjoy the most? Working with artists, knowing artists. Mm -hmm. um, it is the, it's the best thing. And it really, um, you know, I still feel like it is a gift to get to know what artists are thinking about, to be able to talk to them. Um, and every one of those, every every professional sort of position that I've ever that I've ever had has some degree of of engagement with artists. If you teach or when I taught, you know, I often invited artists into my classroom to talk about art because artists know more about art history than any art historian ever will. You know, when I have worked um, at non-art cultural organizations, I often invited artists in to give a perspective about, you know, what was happening in the world, because I think artists have, can, can sometimes have a very different worldview and the one that's important to hear. In my new role now, you know, I find that my downtime is spent chit-chatting, as I call it, with artists um, that I know, because um, first of all, you know, we are all working remotely. And on the weekends, I would have spent my time doing studio visits and catching up with with artists and seeing what's happening and and you know just sort of generally what's going on but because we can't do that I had to figure out another way because I recognized in those first couple months that being cut off being cut off from your workplace being cut off from friends being cut off from family that for me I had another category I could not be cut off from artists so I have a roster of a you know a good number of artists that I try to have phone calls or Zoom uh, visits or something with every single week. I'm envious. Yeah, it's fun. And, and I have to say that we we talk about all kinds of things, you know, but generally it's it's not like I'm planning towards something. I'm just, I'm, I feel like I'm being enriched. Mm -hmm. You're staying connected. Yeah. It's your drug. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yes, and believe me, I understand. So what art movement have you favored the most? Okay, so this is this is a hard question for me, Phyllis, because I, I can't think of anything that I don't like. And that doesn't mean that I'm not discerning because there are, you know, there are things that I'm more and less interested in. And I would have said to you, you know, I often say to people, well, I'm not a figurative person. I'm an abstract person. Um, which is true to some degree, except that then I did this thing where I made a list of all of the paintings that I found most um, transformative for me. And um, a good chunk of that list are figurative works. Figurative French, you know, 18th century, there was a very specific kind of feel to those works. But, you know, I I often say this to, when I when I taught, I would say this to incoming students that um, you can dislike anything. You can tell me that you, you know, don't like a movement. You don't like impressionism, which is something that I often say. Um, but what I want you to do is I want you to spend time with that period so that you actually fully have an understanding of what you don't like about it. You need to put in the energy around it. I also think that people who don't like art just haven't seen either enough art or the thing that appeals to them. So 
it's it, I have to say it's such a hard question and maybe I can come down to like one painting that I really that I come back to a lot um, which is uh, David's uh, Death of Marat. So you know this is the painting that is you know painted in the weeks after um, the revolutionary leader um, Marat has been uh, murdered by Charlotte Corday. And, um, you know, the body is laid there in the tub, you know, he's, his, his head, which is wrapped in a towel is spilling over uh, the tub, his arm is flailing out, he is just drained of all life, he's, you know, white, white as a sheet. And there's that, that box that's sitting there, this wooden box that, that has his name on it, and the wall behind him is just this, this flat plane, and I thought, you know, this is the perfect geometric construction. So I look at that painting and I think, oh, this is interesting because I have chosen this, you know, highly narrativized uh, work that was used in the service of the revolution, you know, even in the, the moments that it was completed, the French revolution that is, um, in the moments that it was completed. But what I have focused in on is its sparseness, its minimal character, the fact that it's, that you can see how it, it came to be compositionally. I also know though, that I'm heavily influenced by the kind of art history that I first studied. So, you know, a lot of, of what goes into my thinking, a lot of what allows me to think that way is having, you know, read TJ Clark's analysis of that painting where he says, you know, it's the first painting of modern life. And so then of course, in my mind, when I would later see minimalist art, I would say to myself, well, this is a way that you compose geometry. Like this is how you do it. So, you know, but honestly, I could, I, I would be, it would be hard pressed for me to find my favorite painting. I think I'd be, you know, at the list of a hundred, we'd be here all week. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be learning so much. <laughs> it would be so interesting. Wow. I also have to say, I really like sculpture because sculpture forces you to be in the space with it. And everything that you do relative to a sculpture is predicted by what the sculpture um, has already set as the ground rules. So you move around it or not, you get up close or not, you can look underneath, um, on top of or not. Like it's, it really does, it forces the viewer into specific relationships um, that the viewer can't determine. I've never thought about it like that. I hate to bring up COVID, but I just wanna hear your perspective on how you feel it impacts artists, their creativity and Along with that, I think it's sort of part of the same discussion because the Black, Life, Black Lives movement was so impactful during the same period of time. But in the last few months, how do you feel COVID and Black Lives movement will impact the art world going forward? You know, I think that for artists, it's been interesting. All of the artists that I know have been okay. And I don't mean that people haven't been ill and they haven't been concerned and, you know, the kind of the pain of the world is not with them. I don't mean that at all. It's just that, you know, I think to be an artist is to commit to a lifestyle where you're making and processing is paramount. And so when the world stops demanding more things of you, you get more time to make. So for most artists, I know when the phone stopped ringing, when the invitations had to be, you know, rescheduled or postponed, when there wasn't the obligation to do this or that, um, when for a lot of people to travel uh, died down, that this was a time to get into the studio and to be uninterrupted. And so I have had people tell me things, you know, about 
this period of time, you know, this this last nine, 10 months as just having been a space where they got to refocus and recenter as artists. And that's fascinating uh, to see because I don't know, um, I don't know if most people in any walk of life have really had a moment to just settle down and to stop moving. And I think that for artists, when the rest of us settle down, they got to work. So I think in that way, um, I think, you know, we, we might wake up in a few years and look at the, the art that was produced in this period or the ideas that, that came about because of this time period and be really challenged by them. And I, don't, I think they might be very different than they would have been otherwise. So I think that's, you know, that is one of the big challenges. I think for those of us who are secondary to the process, who are sitting on, you know, on the perimeter waiting for something to happen, I know that I have also spoken to many uh, friends who did not realize how much they needed art. And so that sense of missing the art object is there. I had it myself, um, you know, I have the privilege of seeing a lot of art on a regular basis and um, not being able to do that in the first few months of COVID was really difficult. So I think that people will come back with a renewed sense of it. And I think for institutions, um, institutions need to be ready to offer that. Um, so I, I have been really pleased by what some of my colleagues have done to make sure that you know, they could reopen safely because I think you know, a lot of museums recognize that need. You know, a good number of, of museums made the argument that they were, uh, that they were a necessity as their cities began to reopen over the summer and that they just like, you know, being able to go to houses of worship or go to, you know, public places like parks, that museums were also necessities. And I think that's incredibly uh, important for people. We are a free, my institution, the Yale Center for British Art is a free institution. And I think that, I hope that, that in, in the rush to reopen that we will probably all experience in the next year and a half, um, that we take into account what it means to be open to everybody. Black Lives Matter, how did that impact you, the protests? You know, I would say that as an institution, it was interesting to watch institutions make statements um, where they had not before. It was fascinating, actually. And I, I, I have watched uh, my peers say things that I didn't know that they felt. Um, and so I hope that they can live up to them. Yeah, me too. This is our last question, okay. which is a, a full-bodied question, and that is, what do you feel is the purpose of art? I have no idea, Phyllis. I have no idea. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm glad I don't know, because maybe if I knew what it was for, I wouldn't be so interested in it. Wow, that's interesting. Because if something has a purpose, I mean, isn't that you're halfway over? You're done with it. Like, you know what it's for. Like, I know what, you know, I know what the drill outside your door is for. I know what the spoon is for. Um, I don't need to ask bigger questions. Not knowing what art is for, not knowing why it's here, as close as I can come to it, uh, you know, I think that, that that's my pursuit. My sense as a younger person of wanting to know how something was made was trying to get at it. And that only got me so far. Okay, so great. I know that you you know, you mix the paints to make certain colors, but that didn't exactly explain how you came up with that shape with those colors. So yeah, love no, your answer. no, 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 I love your answer. It's profound. <laughs> Courtney, thank you so much for your time today. It's, um, it's a delight to be able to feature you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit cerebralwomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.